This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the This week on Race Capital, I sit down with Tim Reed. That's right, Tim Reed. You would have known him from Sister Sister. Or if you were around back in 1978, you'd remember him from Venus Flytrap. Or if you were around back in 1978, you would remember him from Venus Flytrap. Well, he and his wife, that are now RVA locals, Daphne Reed co-founded their own production studio named New Millennium Studios. We were excited to have him come out of his shell and talk to us a little bit about his partnership with the film festival with Oswald. Oswald is the Association for the Society of the Worldwide African Diaspora. So this recording is being aired after the conference, but the conversation between Tim and I really has so much more to do about media, imagination, expression, and we invite you to stay tuned for the after interview conversation where I sit down with Edward Miller, president of Marijuana Justice here in Richmond, Virginia. And we talk a little bit about the Byron Allen case that is being heard today by the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for listening to Raise Capital. Stay tuned. Okay, so today we have with us the infamous Tim Reed. <laughs> That's the right word. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm blessed, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Now, you are a resident of Virginia right now. Born and raised. Beautiful. And um, you and your wife are down in Petersburg, correct? No, no, oh, no. no. We, we, we escaped Petersburg. <laughs> we, we now live in the Richmond area. Oh, well, welcome. Yeah. Um, so are you in city proper or just the metro area? In the fan. Very nice. Well, welcome to the city. For how long have you been around here now? Uh, I've been living up here about going on four years. Four years. Well, yeah, four years. Okay. Okay. So, um, being right here in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, we're really excited that you are hosting the film festival that's um, being hosted at the Oswald Conference this year. Correct. Down in Williamsburg. Down in Williamsburg, and um, there are also some events happening here in Richmond at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, make sure you all are following Oswald Diaspora Conference for more of that information. So, Tim, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of background of how you got involved with the conference this year. Well, I actually um, uh, will learn more about Oswald. When I get there, mm-hmm. I didn't know much about it. Um, I, certainly, the purpose that they uh, that formed the organization, I'm very much interested in. Mm-hmm. But um, Shadra uh, Pittman brought me in to uh, assist her with putting together a film festival, which would be the first time they've attempted to do that at the conference. Right. So, uh, because I have a lot of content, and I am I'm also working with a lot of uh, filmmakers from the continent as well as Europe, uh, the African diaspora. Uh, I have access to and, and relationships with a lot of those filmmakers. So I said, okay, be, you know, good idea to come and bring some of them over. Mm-hmm. And um, and the timing was great. 
So that's that's how I found out about it, and that's why I'm here. I really love that what Shadra is doing by getting folks that are from the area involved in the conference this year, because yeah. like I don't think that your feeling or unfamiliarity with this conference is much different from many other Virginians. Yeah. Um, I was just learning about it last year. This happens to be the 20th year mm-hmm. for the Association of the Society of the African Diaspora. So I think that it's really important, too, that they are trying this film festival. Here yeah. at Race Capital, we're talking a lot about narratives mm-hmm. and how important media is within those narratives. So what have you been up to over the last few years? And many people are familiar with your with you seeing your face on screen, but what are some of the things that you've been doing from behind the scenes? Well, I, I've uh, been fortunate enough to have been in the business now going, this is my 50th year. Wow. And um, at various levels, being a um, born and raised here in Norfolk, graduating from Norfolk State and went right into the real world. Wow. And um, got into media and have stayed in it and have had an interesting uh, exposure to it and, and sort of a realization training of the power of the media and how it shapes our, our thoughts, our, our, our desires, our fears, and always saw an opportunity um, being raised in segregation, raised in Colortown in Norfolk, to see how I could use whatever power I could uh, acquire, whatever knowledge I could acquire, to work towards reshaping, redefining uh, the history of the African diaspora, those of us who find ourselves here in America. Mm -hmm. And for the last 20-something years, maybe 30 now, I've been traveling uh, a great deal uh, around the world and actually discovering uh, the incredible impact that people of the African diaspora have had in the culture and the history and the styles of so many different countries. And it's fascinated me. So um, outside of doing my own work and involving the history in my own work, uh, actually I'm showing an episode of one of my uh, favorite uh, series that I did many years ago called Frank's Place about a bar in New Orleans, a restaurant, I should say, in New Orleans. Uh, One of the episodes that I'm showing, and I had not seen in, God, 20-something years, maybe more, uh, it's called Cultural Exchange. And it's about an African musician who's touring America along with Dizzy Gillespie, who, by the way, was in the episode. And he wants to uh, defect. Mm. And in today's frustration about immigration and where it stands in in our, not only in our vocabulary, but in our psyche, I I thought it was really interesting to show this episode because um, the actor and the the turmoil that was created when he uh, said he wanted to uh, defect and how my character got involved in it. I think fits right in with today's narrative. Also, the actor who was in it was one of my favorite actors, been long forgotten, named Johnny Seca. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Seca was from, I believe, uh, Ghana. And uh, um, he was hadn't worked in a while. And I loved his work. He was in Mohammed Messenger. He was in so many movies. He was a very popular star in England for many years. I mean, along he came up along with Sean Connery and, and Michael Caine. But he, of course, didn't get the kind of international exposure. So he moved to America and worked with Sydney and so many other actors. So having him in it, and I said, this would be a great time because of the, the whole concept of what Ashwad is all about. So I'm showing that in many other films that I've, I've been involved in. And I guess one of the things I'm really most excited about is uh, I created an, an organization called Legacy Media Institute about 12 years ago. Uh, when I was down in Petersburg. And we sort of do reality training experiences with up and coming emerging filmmakers. 
And I wanted to do it because, not that I could see the future, but I knew that sooner or later, uh, the African diaspora gonna uh, awaken to the need to redefine themselves. And right. I wanted to get into the minds and, and uh, the talents of some of the emerging filmmakers. So I went around to Europe and Africa and started working with these young filmmakers. One of them, uh, who will be here, uh, I, I'm so proud of this young filmmaker, he just won the um, Venice uh, Film Festival Lion Award for a documentary, a virtual reality documentary, the first one to win a lion, hmm. uh, on the women of Shabak, the, the, the mothers and, and siblings of, of all the young ladies uh, in that, from that village who were kidnapped by Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. Uh, many were taken, 200 and I forgot, over 250. 276. Yeah, and only about 150 had been returned. Right. Well, this village was hard hit. And he went in and took, and will take viewers into this village, and you meet the people. Mm. And that it's a, it's a short nine-minute virtual reality film, but the impact of it since showing a month ago in Venice has been unbelievable. Wow. It was brought to the U.N., after after seeing being seen in Venice, was brought to the, the UN. He showed it there. They were so moved that they brought over one of the mothers hmm. from first time. I'm sure she's ever flown. Mm -hmm. Brought her over to the UN. She spoke, and the the film and her speaking was so powerful that the UN contributed over five million dollars to the health and psychological well-being of these women. Wow! And that's the power of the media. And yeah. and and that's the one thing about this young filmmaker that I noticed when I had him for about six or seven weeks at my studio in Petersburg was he understood the power. He wasn't sure yet how to use it, but mm -hmm. he understood the power and he's developed to be probably one of the most incredible filmmakers that I've had the pleasure of meeting in this part of that part of my career. And what is his name? His name is Joel Benson. Joel Benson. Can't pronounce his Nigerian name, but it's <laughs> <laughs> they need a vowel. Right. <laughs> we'll look out for Joel, definitely. That's um, an amazing yeah, and it's endorsement. It's called Daughters of Shabaka. It'll be shown, I think, um, Thursday. Mm -hmm. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, um, yes, Thursday and Wednesday. Great. At the, uh, at the fest. And I love the idea that you went out looking for new storytellers. Yes. What made you turn your efforts and your work into that focus? Well, after working in Hollywood uh, as many years as I did, and after a show like Frank's Place, and then I did another one called Snoops, I was so frustrated by the the uh, the inability to get the industry to be more open, not only to talent but also to the story concepts of diversity of story, the kinds of images that I decided to um, to put my money where my mouth was, and I built mm -hmm. a studio. Mm -hmm. And uh, first I moved back here, and I, was, I, I, I retired from the business for about three years, bought a farm in Charlottesville, and just drove around on my tractor trying to figure out something to do with my life. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> decided to get back in, but I knew I had to build a little small army. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I needed people of like mind, same kind of passion. And I didn't find that in a lot of the young filmmakers that I was meeting in at uh, historically black colleges or in Hollywood. Most of them were so uh, intent on the success of the business. Mm. And of course, the, the financial uh, uh, incredible bounty that you can receive if you if you had, had mediocrely successful in our business, as long as you're telling the story that the industry wants you to tell. Mm. And so, and of course, hip hop, which I'm a fan of, my son's been involved in it from the beginning. But the narrative of hip-hop was beginning to f focus 
not away from the music and more into the cliches of of the of the stories. Mm -hmm. And so even in sitcom, when you start seeing McDonald's doing hip hop and uh, all these things, I, I, I knew it was going to be watered down. I said, I've got to find some young people who have yet to be completely infected mm -hmm. uh, with, mm -hmm. the, with the kind of things that I see happening. And I couldn't find it really in America. Mm -hmm. Most of the things that were coming to me, the movies that were being presented, the stories, they were so urban, so, you know, the demand on this and this and that. And uh, they were quite frankly boring. Mm. So when I went over Europe, first to Europe with the British Film Institute, I started training because they were not training black filmmakers over there. Black wow. Brits were not being trained. So I went over and offered to do a program at the British Film Institute, and they accepted it. And at my dime, I started going over, and then I would find these filmmakers and bring them back to America. And I did that for about six or seven years. Hmm. And we started shooting projects over there. Um, and then I went to uh, Nigeria, did a master's class there, found some filmmakers, of course. I went to, uh, I'm spending more time now in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. trying to, um, matter of fact, we're starting a business over there. And I find these incredible storytellers. Mm -hmm. I mean, film-wise, they're getting there. They're, they're, they're not only learning their trade. It's not that they don't have the skills. It's just the, the introduction into the international aspect of distribution and right. how to shape a show so that you've guaranteed a certain amount of success. Uh, but in terms of story, they're better writers. Mm. And they're writing incredible stories. They, they understand the power of story. And so I've been sort of, in the last six, seven years, hanging out mostly with uh, people of the African diaspora, wherever I find them. What do you think the difference is of the mindset of folks outside of America that meets more of what you're looking for and that like-mindedness? Well, we tell stories from the outside in. Mm. We tell how the world, whether it be the Confederate history of Virginia or any, how it affects us. Mm -hmm. Most of the filmmakers, regardless of race, uh, outside of America, let's say in Europe or African continent, tell stories from inside out, mm -hmm. how they affect their environment, mm. how they uh, move into something. Even stories from uh, right now, the, the majority of stories coming out of Nigeria are about people who are moving back from the, from the uh, farms, from, from the villages into the city, mm -hmm. and how they are interacting with it. I mean, it's an interesting view as opposed to how the city is beating them down. Right. It's how they are fighting through or, or in con you know, conflict with, with with society, mm -hmm. they're more in conflict. I find that also in the in the black Brits. That's one of the reasons I think everybody's looking to find out why all these black uh, British actors and actresses are taking over uh, a lot of the diversity roles in America. And one of the reasons is their sense of place. Mm. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but they are not as much a victim. Yeah, and they don't accept victimization as their their uh, the they're basis of their story. Right. It's not. It's not the genre that they're in. Mm -hmm. For instance, the struggle. Uh, I've been going to Ethiopia for about twenty some years uh, when I first went, and I've always dreamed of Ethiopia from way back when I was a little kid. I wanted to go to this place, which then was known as Abyssinia, that Solomon and Sheba. Uh, the story of that and how she she was the queen of Sheba. She was the only black queen I'd ever heard of. Right. And I was fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. Even in Sunday school, I'm going like, who is this Sheba woman, the queen of Sheba? And as I grew and began to read more, I became fascinated with Ethiopians. So when I first went 20-some years ago, I was astounded. Mm -hmm. The history, the culture. Uh, Ethiopia is the only country in the world, um, I would say, that has 
never been ruled at any level of government by a colonial or by a white person huh. in over 3,000 years. Wow. Every ruler, whether it be a good or bad, whether it be a Marxist, no matter, right. were people of African descent. Mm -hmm. They'd never been conquered. Mm -hmm. They defeated the fascist Italians twice. Um, they'd never been enslaved. If you find an Ethiopian who was enslaved in the slave trade, he was in Nigeria somewhere else. He wasn't in Ethiopia. Right. Uh, it is a most incredible culture whose history is just beginning to break through again. It was well known a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the kind of history and culture, when the stories are told by the people who are the an you know, whose ancestors have put them in this position to do, will help bring Africa into some sign of consciousness that I think will begin to spread like a wildfire throughout Africa. Mm. Uh, it's happening in, uh, in uh, Uganda, it's happening in Cape Verde, where I spent a lot of time in. Uh, Africa is reawakening to itself. I wouldn't say its potential or whatever, there's certainly a lot of problems. But it's awakening to itself. What is an African? And mm -hmm. I, I like the concept, one of the reasons I'm involved with Ashba is the, the concept, we used to call ourselves in America um, Afrocentric. Mm -hmm. Well, that w that's, again, an American word. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure some white journalist probably came up with it. <laughs> but um, the African diaspora is really what we are. Mm -hmm. No matter where you find someone of African descent, no matter what century, they are members of the African diaspora. The African diaspora has spread across this planet since time. Mm -hmm. The first person to stand upright Lucy was, her bones are in Ethiopia. You can walk up and see them. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people of African descent, and I don't mean necessarily just black, people of African descent, whether it be from Egypt or whoever, has had a tremendous impact. The Moors ruled the Iberian Peninsula for almost 800 years mm -hmm. prior to the slave trade, mm -hmm. you know. So th there's incredible history that's been I wouldn't say hidden. It's, it's actually hidden in plain sight. Right. We just were taught not to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. The kind of propaganda that we've been fed, uh, you got to realize that all the history we know of Africa or America or comes from <laughs> uh, a European point of view. Right. You know, you got people running and says, I discovered America. Well, people, there were human beings here when they got here. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm yep. thinking about going over to some suburbs and I've discovered this place <laughs> and I this house is mine. I want you out. <laughs> you know? That should be okay, yeah, I yeah. feel like. But uh and so all this other history has been pushed aside mm -hmm. and 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 sort of knocked uh, uh put away. Right. And it's incredible history. Right. So especially here in Richmond, Virginia, you talked about um unmarked history and untold history. Mm -hmm. I started a walking tour here on Broad Street this past summer just to tell the different stories that I've heard doing grassroots organizing work around political yeah. politics, especially with my elders and the, the riots of Jackson and the businesses of Jackson Ward and just the way that the city has changed that we just don't know and can't see from yeah. our, car, our, our windows in our cars. I'm really interested because I myself had to recondition the way that I was thinking and telling these stories mm -hmm. and even researching, right? Like what research sources was I, were I taking in um, and learning to appreciate other oral histories and other types of documentation yeah. that really told authentic stories. But I'm interested to hear what do you think that we need to change here in America, especially for our young black people that are from African descent? Mm -hmm. um, 
What should we do? <laughs> Boy, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think for some, not that it's too late, but I think for some, it's not so much what do we do is what do we want? Mm. And, and, you know, do we really care? Right. Um, we have a whole millennial, uh, we call them millennials, just a generation of young people who were literally the first, I think, generation uh, in modern era who were not mentored by their by their parents and elders. Right. The baby boomers baby boomers did not mentor right. their young. Right. They put them in front of Sesame Street and Electric Company and and this is the first millennials are the first generation to be really raised by the internet and, and by television. And so they're lacking a few things. Uh, social um, uh, not social acceptance, but social involvement, mm -hmm. uh, compassion, mm -hmm. uh, empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a whole generation of young people who are searching and uh, I admire their, their, their instinctive needs. They're going back, they're grabbing vinyl records. They're looking for mm -hmm. history, but they're looking for it sort of in a, in a sort of postmodern uh, way. Right. And I, I find that interesting. I think what we can do is to understand uh, and give up, first of all, the stance of a victim. Hmm. I think once you stop identifying yourself, no matter your plight, right. um, and no matter your race, but when you stop uh, identifying yourself as a victim, then you put the onus on yourself to say, okay, now if I'm not a victim, uh, I'm not saying I'm a conqueror, but what do I do with this new energy? Mm -hmm. You say, okay, mm -hmm. I have to, if I'm not a victim, I have to be something. What am I gonna be? Mm -hmm. Am I gonna be a journeyman? Am I gonna be a, a warrior? Am I gonna be, what am I gonna be? Right. And then you begin to feed yourself the information, the, the experiences that you need to become that person. I don't think that many of us, I see it now in, in great numbers, uh, and the white population that they're they're beginning to take the stance of a victim. Everything is victim. Forget what you got and how much money you got and where you live. But when you begin to identify yourself as a victim, you're losing. Right. You know, and it's only one place to go. You you have to defend. Mm. You don't uh, you don't aggressively fight. You defend. You're angry. Your hatred. Your fears are are, are magnified right. because you see yourself as a victim. There's no place for me here. I have to take a place. I have to hurt. I have to do things. But when you don't see yourself as a victim, then you have, guess what, consequences to pay with. You have to say, I have to do something. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I do? Right. And that requires a commitment that I'm not sure a lot of people are willing to make. Yeah. I tend to agree with you, to be really honest, um, especially here in the South, finding younger folks to be involved in things that might quote unquote matter deeply. Yeah. It is harder. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, Hollywood or the industry that you're in and the story mm -hmm. that they want you to tell. Mm -hmm. Would you like to just unpack that, talk about that a little bit more? Just not even just in the yeah. industry, but worldwide. The story. well, I think I think it's a matter of a matter of understanding. That's why I say when you look at it, you st you take yourself away from the victim, and you start looking at it as um, a participant. Mm. You understand what the needs are for people who control the industry. Right. People who are in power want to stay in power, you know, yep. and as it's been said, ultimate power ultimately corrupts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if you yeah. want to be in power, so how do you stay in power? Well, you have to have a lower class mm -hmm. that service you, for one. Right. And then you have to have control of the minds of the people so they don't rebel and take your power or right. come for your power. So how do you do that? You do that with media. Right. You condition them to feel a certain way about themselves or, or feel a certain way about other people. Right now, and again, it's because of traveling, 
uh, I was recently in Portugal, in Lisbon, and people are on edge. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are fearful. It's not just, oh, what black people going to do or Hispanic people going to do. Uh, everywhere, people right. are on edge and they're fearful, and they don't know how, they haven't decided yet their, their mode of, 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 what do they do? Do they attack? Do they... You know, you look at what's happening in, in Hong Kong, you look at what's happening around the world, there, there's a, it's sort of like a, a chaotic energy mm -hmm. looking for a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, and what it the purpose is. started to be has been changed into all this other aggression. Nothing wrong with it, but it has to go somewhere. Right. And I think that if people who are using media uh, understand its power, then that makes them powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, I told you, this young kid who did a nine-minute video about women in Shabak is just taking it all the way to the UN, the UN, and millions of dollars. I mean, I've seen how images can shape and, and change the world, change mm -hmm. a person. It, it you know, uh, I know how images have changed me. Right. Stories have changed me. So it's a very powerful thing, and I think people have to understand that. Right. You just can't be taking pictures of your food <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, and, you, and your breastuses and say, oh, boy, look what I'm doing. I mean, it, it is it's such a powerful medium to be used. I, I always say that they have all these smartphones and they give them to dumbass people. <laughs> you know, it's just right. it's an amazing waste of. Uh, and then we're coming to one of the most frightening things in electronic history um, who was seen years ago by a black woman who wrote the book that later became The Matrix, her vision back 20, when she, she started writing that book, probably 25, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. her vision will come true in another year. It's called 5G, The Matrix. Mm. Everything mm -hmm. known to electronics, every word spoken, everything digitized, right. will now be in The Matrix. Yep. Your toaster will be in the Matrix. Oh, goodness. And I think that people of like, we see these movies, but uh, I'm not, I don't know whether it's something to fear or where I, I'm certainly not going to fear it because that, that would delegate any opportunity for me to move forward with it. But I have to understand it. Right. And I have to know how to use it for the benefit of myself, my family, my culture. And, and, mm -hmm. and uh, so I think if we look at, I hate looking back now. You know, I, I know what racism has meant. I fought against it. I marched and in, in helped integrate places right here in the state of Virginia when I was a member of uh, uh, SCAD, a member of the student committee, uh, I mean student uh, chapter of NAACP. I marched on Washington. I did all of that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going back to do that. Mm -hmm. I've, got, I've got other things to do. I've got to use this 50 years of experience right. in a more, more prosperous way, a more beneficial way, not only myself, but to my culture. Right. So we keep fighting the same battle. Mm. You know, why yes. are we fighting that? You know, it, it, we, right. they lost that battle. The Confederacy lost, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> Nobody remembers that. No, and that's truly why th this entire <laughs> platform was made, because before I can even motivate folks, I feel like I have to teach them what they don't know or don't yeah. remember, so we don't repeat them, right, this. And it is that. It is like, let's tell the story of what it is and let's move on to what the future holds. We've got to get ready. It's coming. It is It is here. Right. It's, not, it's coming. It's right. here. So how do we, how does the African diaspora, wherever it finds itself, I, I, I sent something back um, to Ethiopia that was spread like a wildfire that they weren't aware of. Do you know that the first battle fought in the war of uh, 1776, and actually the battle was in 1775, I think it was called uh, Kemp's Landing, mm -hmm. it was a battle, was fought by uh, uh, Ethiopians, nope. Abyssinian force, 
I forgot how many it was, they attacked the then Patriots and, and uh, recovered uh, uh, some runaways who had been captured by the Patriots, going to put them back into slavery. Well, these Ethiopians who was over here fighting uh-huh. in the war, <laughs> our independence of 1776 right. uh, was the first battle won. They defeated the Patriots and got back about 150 uh, uh, runaways. Nope. Haven't so, ever heard that story. Heard nope. nope. Neither had the people in Ethiopia. Hmm. Uh, the history, our history is so intertwined. Matter of fact, many years later, the descendants or people who stayed over after, that, after our War of Independence and settled up in this little place in New York called Harlem created the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And, and matter of fact, when in the war of uh, Andwad in, in Ethiopia, when they fought the second battle against the uh, Italians, fascist Italians, uh, Haile Selassie came to, to Abyssinian Baptist Church and got on the pulpit with then Adam Clayton Powell Sr. and asked that black Americans come and join their battle hmm. and fight. Do you know over a thousand black Americans went to Ethiopia and fought in that war? Wow. This was the war, by the way, that the history won't tell us, but it's true. That was the war that started World War II. Mm. The, actually, World War II started in Ethiopia in 1939 when the Italians were defeated wow. by the Ethiopians. That was a world war. Right. Planes, matter of fact, the first planes built were built by graduates of Tuskegee Airmen, who was an American who went over during this time and mm-hmm. fought alongside the uh, Ethiopians. So this history, now, why is this history important? Their history is important because someone who sees himself in a, in a ment- slave mentality, sees himself in a negative mentality, if they know that people back in 1938, 39, were traveling the world and joining the battles of other people, uh, it gives them a better. When I saw hidden, um, hidden figures, I actually was I, I had, was, I had a very mixed emotion. I was happy, mm-hmm. and then I was angry. Okay. I'm angry because I grew up in Hampton Roads in Norfolk, Virginia. Went to segregated schools all my all my life until I graduated from Norfolk State. Nowhere in our history books was the history of these women yeah. who were very much a part of the space program. Right. Can you imagine a young black girl in elementary school, in segregated school, knowing that there were black women who were so well-educated and so involved in the space program? That would have given them a different dream. Absolutely. So 100%. why did they keep that from us? Well, it's obvious. Right. Don't want you dreaming those dreams. Right. Uh, one of my favorite um, stories is uh, the first graduate with a Ph.D. in the history of America got his Ph.D. 11 years after emancipation. His name mm. was Ed- Edward Alexander Boucher. Mm-hmm. Probably never heard of him. Nope. He got his Ph.D. in physics <laughs> from Yale University. Wow. Now, how come we don't know that? We don't know how that. How come kids, you know, we know Jackie Robinson, we know Joe Lewis, yeah. but we don't know Ed- Edward Alexander Boucher. Right. Now, obviously, when he was in, uh, when slavery was still before emancipation, when it was against the law in many states to teach a black person, he was reading a book because mm-hmm. he got it 11 years after. Right. Exactly. So, obviously, <laughs> to get a Ph.D. in physics. You were reading. Matter of fact, one of 25 of any race in America. Those are the things that young people need to be absorbed in. It has to be told in an entertaining way, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the sort of uh, sameness of our history. Mm-hmm. You know? And then we're not all, everybody was not a scientist, but they did courageous things. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. The most decorated war v- uh, veteran of World War I was the black man, Johnson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most decorated. The first ticker tape parade ever held in America was held for him. Right. 
1919. So it's 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 just an incredible history that I think it gives it gives the warrior, the soul, the warrior in us, other garments to put on. You don't yeah. always have to wear the shackles. Yes, yes. So I'm I'm working on a project with Virginia State University right mm-hmm. now um, to uplift some of the readjusters movement stories. Yes. And um, I ran across that story about a year and a half ago, and I just haven't been able to get enough. And so now some of my political friends are teaching down there, and we've got some um, historians. You should see my documentary on the readjusters. I should. Yes, I've done two. Uh, my first one was for the history of Virginia State, and that's how I discovered them. And then my second, they're in part of the, if you go to the Capitol, you go down in the basement of the Capitol and they show where the tourists go, mm-hmm. you'll see a documentary showing in both rooms. And we did that documentary. It's the history of Virginia in 18 minutes. And in them, we talk about the readjusters. Oh, I will definitely have to get that, and we'll maybe talk more offline about um, this launch that we're doing in January with, with yeah. Virginia State. Yeah. I love that. Well, so um, we've got a few more minutes, but mm-hmm. if you were in charge of the 400th year commemoration, mm-hmm. how would this year have looked? Well, I think I, I don't know. I, I, as I said, you you can you can take someone to water but you can't make them drink right i don't know that it would have been much different than what people are trying to do i think there mm-hmm. would have been more people of african descent involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i think the monies that and there were hundreds of thousands of dollars 24 million Ooh, that's a that's 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 a thousand heirs <laughs> <laughs> 24 million well i want to know how much of that was put into uh the hands of creative people of color Mm-hmm. I think very little. Yep, the Richmond Times dispatched a story about a week and a half ago, and I, in the larger pots of money, not one person of color was listed. Yeah, and, and it's, it's par for the course. I mean, if you got power, you're going to make sure the people who who you uh, who suit your purpose get some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that still shouldn't stop us. Right. You know, Absolutely. It, it, whoever has the money is not a, a who has who has the power is the one who controls the image. Mm. And uh, you'll get the money. You control the image. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll, they'll pay you to go away <laughs> <laughs> if you control the image. <laughs> Do you know my life, Tim? No, that's playing. Um, well, I can't let you go without, mm-hmm. and normally I do um, brief our guest on mm-hmm. this last segment that is the favorite of our listeners, actually. And it's the segment called What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a portion of the show where we invite the guests just to identify um, a privilege within their life that they carry to disrupt the myth of the dominant narrative of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've spoken a lot about this throughout your entire interview. You really have, especially um, I just want to thank you personally for lifting as you climb. I love that you went out and found the young storytellers. Um, that, to me, is just so important and why I'm really reaching back to young people in VCU. I'm teaching at VCU this year for the first time. But I, I see that, and I'm inspired just listening to you. But just maybe um, a little bit about what you see your privileges and how you're using it to create more access. Well, I think uh, the privileges I've had coming from incredible, um, humble beginnings is that I was trained very early. I mean, before I was a teenager, to be a storyteller, a griot. Uh, I was the one responsible for telling what happened at the church choir rehearsal. I was the one responsible for making my grandmother and my aunt laugh uh, about 
what I had done or what was happening in the community. Mm -hmm. And they trained me to be a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And in incredible ways. There's nothing like, uh, that goes back to our, our African roots, our ancestral roots, actually. There's nothing like being able to, a small group of people, tell a story. It's almost like around the fire. Ours was around the, the stove or in the kitchen, around the, around, the, uh, around the stove in the kitchen or in the living room. And we would tell these stories. Our stories were told to us by my uncles and great uncles, and, and, and that has stuck with me. And I consider myself, above all, a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And that is the best privilege. And I understand its power. That's why I was never afraid uh, when I went to Hollywood. You know, when I first went to Hollywood, you know, they tried to threaten me. The, the pishers, that's a, uh, a Yiddish word, gatekeepers. Mm. Well, it's not as romanticized as gatekeepers, but that's what they are. Mm -hmm. they, they use fear and, and intimidation, bullies, to try to frighten you away. They have no power. Right. Matter of fact, they're more frightened than you are. And when you stand up to them by just virtually like, excuse me, you know, um, and they don't see the fear in your eyes. See, people can detect being a victim. They can detect victimization. They can detect fear. Mm. And when you show them fear, uh, you only have two options, to either be out-muscle them and defeat them or yield. Mm. But if you don't show them fear, they don't know how to handle that. When I say they, anyone, not right. just a just dominant culture. So when I had no, no whole lot of fear, uh, and, and it's because I was bred not to be fearful in Norfolk, Virginia. My right. folks were like, yeah, we lived in color town, but you didn't mess with my family. Right. You really didn't. I mean, and they, they trained me how to be uh, mindful, how to su be successful in some of the worst conditions that I found myself. And when I left uh, Norfolk State and I graduated, I started working. I graduated on a Friday. I went to work for DuPont. I was the first black hired by DuPont in the management training program and was sent to cover three states for them. They had never had that in. They nobody mm -hmm. know what to do. I was an, I was an experiment. Mm -hmm. But it didn't frighten me. I'm in a room with people from MIT, from Georgia Tech, Stanford, and I'm from Norfolk State. Actually, it was a division. It wasn't even a full college then. We right. were a, Virgin, a division of Virginia State. <laughs> and they were like, oh, he'll be gone. Mm -hmm. And I outlasted so many of them. Wow. So why? It wasn't that I was the smartest. Nah, it wasn't that. Because I, was a, I knew how to hustle. Mm -hmm. I knew how to, to work hard, but also play the game. Mm -hmm. And I learned that in the streets of Norfolk. I learned that from my uncles, the players. My great aunt had one of the largest whorehouses in, uh, in Norfolk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would see these people. And the, I learned so many things from the faults of others. And, and uh, I took that with me. Mm -hmm. So even in your worst condition, you're better off if you see yourself more as someone who has a say in what their life will be. When you give up and become a victim, I don't care what your race, I don't care what your beginnings are, you're, you're in, you've given yourself 6% chance to fail right. just by accepting being a victim. Yep. You, know, yep. you see people who are painting great paintings with their teeth. Right. <laughs> no, I can't right. paint like that with my hand. Right. Why didn't they give up? Mm -hmm. They don't have no arms. Mm -hmm. Why? Right. They didn't see themselves as victims. Right. That mindset is really powerful. Very powerful. It's the most powerful thing on this planet right now. Mm -hmm. uh, if if you want to change the world, you got to be a warrior. You can't be a victim. Mm. Well, that seems like a great place to end it right there. You want to change the world? You got to be a warrior. You can't be a victim. Can't be a victim. 
Thank you so much, filmmaker Tim Reed, Thank storyteller you. extraordinaire. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this time with us here at Race Capital. And um, how can people follow your work or just keep up with what you're doing? Well, they got to move fast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, first of all, get down to Williamsburg at yes. William & Mary uh, this coming week. Uh, we're going to show about 26, 27 films and mm -hmm. shorts from all over the world, animation from Trinidad. Trinidad is the, one of the largest animating societies in the world coming mm -hmm. out of Trinidad. I'm showing some stuff. I've been knowing about them for years. Uh, and so find out what, you know, if you can't travel, at least go to places like and watch the, the, the content being done by other people. Right. The world is changing. Mm -hmm. We're still stuck with the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Yep. About the Confederacy. Nope. I really don't. Nope. You know, you know that we're the only country that builds monuments to losers? You know we're building a new one? A I, new Confederate I, monument? You will not find a monument to Adolf Hiss or <laughs> Herman Goering. You will not find a Hitler anywhere in the world. Right, right. <laughs> I know. And look, Tim, I, I'm a writer, too. I try and put media out there. And I just wrote a piece because the Women's Monument up on the state capitol, the one, the new ones that they're building are And they put Keckley up there, by the way. Yes. Keckley. I did a document on Keckley, one of the most incredible women who ever walked this earth. Yep. Right down there from Dinwiddie. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So some amazing women and uh, stories to be told, but we do have to get in the right mind frame and figure out what to keep in the past and what to bring in the future. And you got to want to see them. There you go. There you got to go. <laughs> Step out your comfort zone, find out these stories, find the content makers, and let's work together. Thank well, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you, sis. And good luck to you. Thank you. everybody enjoyed the interview with Tim Reed, filmmaker extraordinaire. But today on November 13th, we really want to bring some attention to the Supreme Court case that's being brought up by Byron Allen. It was first filed in 2015 with the support of Obama based on his interview with The Breakfast Club. If you have not seen that, it's about an hour long interview, but it's a great listen to in the car. Byron Allen's lawsuit was first um, against Comcast and Charter Communications, as well as AT&T, for $20 billion. That's B, billion. And according to Byron Allen, he is stating that Comcast and AT&T were refusing to carry his networks, which is entertainment studios that he started in 1993. And not only were they refusing to put his network on, they were also refusing just to meet with him in general. He is bringing his suit um, to court based on the 1866 Civil Rights Act. And this was passed with a very large margin back in 1866, because if we remember, this was a time that the United States was going through emancipation. We had just set out that our enslaved people were now free and they were putting contracting laws into our system so that jobs and economy could be fair. We have to understand that our entire civilization is based on the economy and us being able to um, earn money to take care of ourselves. So if the money is out there and we're not being contracted, that right there is going to cause some disparities and that's not good for the community in general. So in 1866, this is where we were. We were as a country really aiming for fairness. Well, Today, 
um, November 13th, AT&T is now out of this suit. They settled with Byron and now seven of his networks are actually on AT&T's direct TV lineup. And um, so it's important to see that they have settled that they've added the channels and they are moving on. But Comcast is continuing to stand their ground. Now, President Trump filed a brief uh, stating that they were on the side of Comcast and Trump saying that, you know, it's going to be really important for Byron to prove that the reason that he is not being able to be brought on by Comcast is specifically on race of that Civil Rights Act of 1866 is a racial discrimination act. And so the way that our laws are set up is that it is up to Byron Allen to prove that he was not being allowed into the system because of race. It is not up to Comcast to say and defend themselves to say this is why we didn't uh, meet with him. So outside of President Trump, we've also had Dr. Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King, come out and condemn Comcast as well as Bobby Rush in Illinois, who is a Democrat. Dr. King she put a quote out uh, just earlier this week saying, knowing that the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was enacted to prohibit discrimination of any kind when making and enforcing contracts, why is Comcast relentlessly fighting for the right to avoid doing business with a person of color so long as his or her race is one of several factors for such refusal? This is a question that we really are asking for many of the systems and apparently Byron Allen is really stating that we have to change the way that black networks are on TV because the way that it's set up right now is an act of enslavement. What's happening right now is in order for black networks to be on uh, these TV, direct TV, Comcast, that they actually have to give up an equity state stake and that's their profit. Therefore, their ownership is still within the master. I mean, Comcast. So this is the part of the system that they're trying to change of why should we have to give up that equity state? Why do we have to give up our profit in order to just have access to the public and this type of distribution of media? Apparently, Roland Martin also says that, look, this is the same thing that happened to launch TV one in Mississippi to the initial BET launch. So this is just the way that black media and black networks have had to navigate the system since the beginning of time. So to talk to me a little bit about this today, I've brought in um, a friend of mine as well as a business partner, Edward Miller, who is the president of Marijuana Justice. Hey there. Hey, what's going on, Chelsea? Um, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Um, for having me. Yeah. So first of all, tell the folks a little bit about who you are and what you do in Richmond. Sure, sure. Yeah, my, uh, like Chelsea mentioned, my name is Edward Miller. Folks call me Ed. Uh, I'm uh, an operations analytics director for uh, for a smaller company here in the area, a pretty fast-growing company, though. Um, I live, breathe data. That's what I do day in, day out. And uh, for a lot of the work that we're doing here with Marijuana Justice, there's a, a big centering around data. And that's, that's, that's one of the bigger pieces that I think is often overlooked with cases like this is mm -hmm. just the end-to-end the -end data components and the narratives that are also hidden and these messages as well in mm -hmm. terms of like how, how do black people get on TV? So that, that's something that's a, a big, big concern of mine just around this whole case. Right. So thank you for that. Thank you for bringing up your your data piece, because honestly, the mer the narratives that we see on TV should be substantiated by some sort of data. Right. If we're talking about um, the news or we're talking about just 
general happenings in the community, it should be substantiated some way. And many times, I mean, data itself can be skewed too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I see it all the time. Um, people go in with a story they want to tell and then just go grab the data to support that story. Mm. I'd love to say that uh, it's completely neutral, but everything from how we capture the data to the story that's around it has biased in it. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that this whole Byron Allen case is going to play out as far as impact and influence within our culture and our country around media? Sure, sure. So the, the biggest component that I'm seeing there is just the impact on data mm. and the, the narratives that are going to be there as a result. So having better opportunities for people of color to get on these cable networks allows us to tell our story mm. um, rather than having the story narrated by uh, majority white networks. Right. And I mean, that goes back to our one of our recent ancestors, Toni Morrison, really talking about writing for the white gaze, right? Yeah. And it's the same way with our media and having stories on this particular type of um, platform, like a TV, we have to have our stories told by us. What do you think about this whole 1866 Civil Rights Act? I mean, that many folks are saying he, he pulled out, you know, emancipation. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this even a realistic act to bring up in 2019 or back in 2015, right? And this was also something that was supported I did want, I brought up earlier that this was supported by Obama when he was in office because it was said that Obama realized that the court system was the way to make this push. But I don't know. What do you think about this 1866? I think it was very, it's a very creative, it's a very creative way uh, to get in there. And it's another thing, it's like a history lesson for most people. Right. Um, you think about how many people actually know about the civil rights laws that were passed in 1866 mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. was just post-Civil War, pre-Jim Crow laws. And it's actually pretty amazing to take a look at the legislature that was passed then mm. and see how far we've been missing it since then. Right. I mean, I would love to even put up on a board, right, what our government officials looked like in 1866, because there were many black elected officials from the South that were now within federal government making our laws. Um, so definitely shout out to South Carolina that had so many free black people and they were able to jump into legal the political system very quickly after the Civil Rights War. I mean, <laughs> the Civil Rights War, Civil War, uh, so that we could get some civil rights, right? And I love that you said it's a history lesson. And here in Race Capital, we try to always tell those historic untold stories and relate them to today. And when I was made aware of this lawsuit again, because I remember hearing about it very, very early on, but it didn't sink in with me. And maybe back then I also didn't have a media platform, right? Right, right. Makes a difference. <laughs> Makes a difference. So when I was up to speed that this case was happening this month, it was like, I relate to this wholly and completely. Race Capital is one of the very few public platforms for media here in Richmond. We've got Richmond Free Press, shout out to RVA Dirt, uh, Urban Views, and it's just, but that's it. Yep. And that's all we got. Um, but the idea that we are going back to this 1866 contracting procurement law mm -hmm. also really um, poked my senses for the Navy Hill conversation. Right, right. 
and uh, the Creighton Court conversations, all of these development conversations. And I'm going to shout out Earl Bradley. If you don't know Earl Bradley in the city, you need to follow him. He has been stomping around talking about procurement laws since I have been in a room with him. And it's the same type of conversation of if we just follow the laws that were in place since 1866, we actually would be able to have more fair contracting. So, Ed, why do you think, just general speculation here, that folks don't know and aren't talking about 1866 Civil Rights Act? Why is this such a history lesson for folks? Yeah, I'll be completely transparent. Um, when they brought this up, I had no idea what yeah. the Civil uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866 was. Mm-hmm. And I think because uh, we've existed in a culture today that it, it, we've functionally ignored it for such a long time, um, it is dusting off those history books to say, oh, what, what actually was happening? Because there were some good things that were happening at that time. Mm-hmm. But when we think about our history, it's been functionally ignored. Mm. So it, I think it does kind of catch people off guard that uh, we would go back there for something that we would be talking about in 2019. Right. And it, it really just proves that those very intentional laws that were to disrupt and flip their system on its head after slavery times, uh, the era of enslavement, that those were very intentionally, like you said, ignored for a very long time. And that's why it's important for this case right now to make make media, right? <laughs> um, thankfully, we've been able to hear about it. And The Breakfast Club was one of the first ones to meet recently, which is a black platform. Right. So again, it's black people even spreading the word about our black issues. And if we didn't have these mechanisms, these platforms in place, we might not know what's happening with Byron Allen. Exactly. So what do you think is the win of this for the country? Does it only depend on if he actually wins in the Supreme court? Like what happens to this momentum in the conversation if he doesn't win? I think the fact that the conversation is happening is a win in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even if he does not win the case, uh, I, it won't be the last one that we'll see like it. Right. And the fact that we're here talking today and having a history lesson on Civil Rights Acts of 1866, again, it's it's the conversation that's happening. It's creating awareness around this topic. And the awareness that's there, I think, starts to shift folks and shift media and shift decision makers in a different direction because it's essentially saying we will not be ignored. Mm. I would love to see how that could play out in Richmond. I would love to see, um, because right now we have a lot of progressive media systems like Virginia Mercury. Mm -hmm. I do not know this for a fact, but I think that all of their of color people are just contributors and aren't staff. And they're one of our most progressive um, platforms. And if anyone's listening and wants to prove me wrong, I hope you do. Please email us at racecapital at gmail.com. But yeah, what about, I wonder, I'm thinking VPM, they've got Malcolm over there. Shout out to Malcolm. Um, But like these still aren't black run platforms, right? These aren't black owned. We're still just working for the man. Right. Um, So in the former capital of the Confederacy, I think it's important that we really look at ourselves internally. Like what black media are you taking in on a regular basis? Yeah. How, how is that media funded? Because Richmond free press only comes out once a week in the print. We know it takes them a little bit longer to run even the digital places, the digital ads or stories. 
Um, Race Capital and RVA Dirt were completely funded by donations from you all, the listeners, on our Patreon. So thank you all for that. Um, Urban Views, I, to be totally honest, I don't see too much of them, but I know they're still around. But again, it's the, the dollars that are into this. Absolutely. And it's always the expectation that black media is supposed to just to do it either for free or for basically nothing. Right. Or give up some of your equity to the man in order to get access to the mic right we we take a pay cut just to keep the news flowing mm. Mm. just for our news to get out there right um and that we could go on and on about that but i really appreciate byron allen bringing this to the attention of the country so that we can all start using that 1866 civil rights act i'll also um just point out that again at&t pulled out made um a deal for this just because they were threatened with this lawsuit. So how in the world can we now use the law that was constructed basically for our demise Mm -hmm. to, for our own liberation. And that's the conversation we're going to continue to have here at race capital. Maybe there can be some more equity and fairness in the media. Maybe you hear race capital on a mainstream media platform here in the city. And I'm great. great. And I could get paid for this. Absolutely. We could even get like cool equipment and maybe even like live stream videos. Mm -hmm. Look at all that. We got opportunities, but right now we just do not have the resources for that growth. No, No. So how does that impact our community? How does that impact our evictions cases right now? How does that impact this billion dollar deal that we got going on with Navy Hill? How does that impact our transit system? How does the media stories and just the access to the platforms impact the population that everybody seems to care about when they're in crisis? Well, we'll see. We will. Yep, and um, we, Thank you so much, Ed Miller, for joining the platform Race Capital. Hopefully this will not be your last time on the show. I, I certainly hope you'll have me back. <laughs> Ed is a good friend of mine. And um, if you're Facebook friends of mine, please go and search. You'll see a... Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you'll see a cool prom picture, maybe some homecoming pictures uh, back in Monacan High School <laughs> of um, my partner and I. So good times, uh, good stories and history, making history here at Race Capital. Thanks so much, Ed, for joining us. Thanks for everybody for listening. Follow us, Race Capital, on everything. Reach out to us, racecapital at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week. I'm from the R.